Well, as I've been saying for weeks, when the Holy Spirit came, he changed everything. And piece by piece, we are trying to understand all that means. How gather is uh, redefined by increase numerically and spiritually, how uh, serving is redefined by proximity because God came near, and now how we learn is completely redefined by revelation. There is so much more to learn because God is speaking again. So what was the first thing revealed that we need to learn? Beginning of Acts chapter 5 had this rather sobering passage that helped us understand who we're dealing with as we consider the Holy Spirit. He is a person, and he is God. So that would mean for us practically that he's to be obeyed because he's God. He's to be trusted because he's a person, and he understands us more than we can even understand ourselves. And he is to be depended upon because he can, because he's able because he's powerful, because he's God. And we should be gripped with a wholesome dread of displeasing him and that deep knowledge at the same time that he is able. This is how we grow our faith, and it leads to our second lesson that we've read from out of this, uh, I'm going to draw from, out of this passage that we've just read. This is the plan to grow spiritually. And I want to show you how that's lived out practically in the lives of the apostles. But then I also want to give you five things through which you will grow spiritually. Try and make this just as understandable and as practical as possible. So living this out, what did they learn? Well, the first thing we can see is that there will be opposition. Opposition is a part of the plan. Jesus taught this. Jesus actually demonstrated this. John chapter 16 is one of the classic passages we go to, the mo- one of the more comprehensive passages in which Jesus teaches on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, all that we're talking about, all the change of everything that was about to come. He explains in a, in a, in a, in a concise way in John chapter 16. In the middle of that, He says this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. So the opposition is not to create terror or fear as much as peace. In this world you will have trouble. See, it's part of the plan. But take heart because I have overcome the world. So Jesus taught that this opposition was part of the plan and part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to help us walk through that plan. Jesus even led by his example in this. Matthew chapter 4, we find that he's baptized and the Holy Spirit descends upon him and then the passage says, the Holy Spirit then led Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the devil. See, it's part of the plan. He's just been baptized. What a wonderful experience. And now he's going to spend 40 days, 40 nights in fasting and prayer, in great hunger and weakness, and then be tempted by the evil one. 
So as we had in the reflections quote of last week, don't expect the Holy Spirit to coddle you, not if you want to grow spiritually. The Holy Spirit understands that we learn best against the odds, in hardship, in, hostile, in a hostile desert, rather than the peaceful banks, than by the peaceful banks of the Jordan River. So we see now the, the, this reality in the context of Acts chapter 5. These men are arrested, they are jailed, they are interrogated, eventually they are even flogged. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul describes this new life reality in this way. A great door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. Isn't that interesting? In the greatest moments of opportunity, there's also opposition, much opposition. Now, just listen to these implications a little bit, and, and don't, don't write these down. I just want you to think about these for a second, and then I'm going to come back to these implications. I'm going to go to a few of them as we walk along here today. Jesus' teaching was very, very practical. They understood what this would mean, and he demonstrated what it would mean. And their personal ministry was very, very obvious as they carried it out and you could see it and they were faithful at it and they continued in it now here's the lesson that we draw out of this uh, first thing that we should learn that there is opposition you grow through this so don't be surprised don't blame God don't think you're above it Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. No servant is greater than his master. So we tend, of course, to be surprised. Why me? And and then we blame God. Why God? And how dare you? And to us, he might be saying, who do you think you are? (laughs) You're not above this. Don't think it's just because you sinned either. Now, I'm going to return to that concept in January. We're going to dig a little deeper into that because some of the opposition, some of the difficulties that we face in our lives we bring upon ourselves. That's true. But it's not just because you sinned. And that's an important thing for us to realize. Now we've all experienced this. We've all said, well, I wouldn't want to repeat that, but I learned so much through it, right? So that's important that we understand that opposition is part of the plan. But then there's something else I want you to see, and that is that you have a partner. There is a partner in all of this. And of course, we can see in this passage the amazing things that he does through the apostles. Some of these things we don't even see today in verses 12 through 16. Uh, and, I, and yet I will say that I believe that these things many times still do happen in situations where the church is not established and the word of God is not present. And that's part of the reason that we see them happening here. Because the church was just being established and it was these things that confirmed its authority and its position and its place. And many times we'll hear from our missionaries of remarkable things that happen that we don't see here because we don't need to see them here. The church is established and the word of God is available and we have a responsibility to then live that out for people to see, which is more powerful actually than... uh, than some of these amazing miracles. But he is also very, very present in the opposition, and they know it. The key verse in this regard is verse 32. Because as they're being interrogated, uh, 
they end up answering. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit. You may find this familiar. We talked about it in chapter 3. It's been said before. This is not the first time that Peter ends up saying this. And he uses this word martyr or martyrs. We would die for this. That's the witness. And we're not alone. The Holy Spirit is a witness to this as well. And not just that it happened, but what happened. That's what he's saying when he says, I'm a witness to this. Not just that it happened. You know, we all kind of know that something amazing happened. No, that not just that it happened, but what happened. And he explains. The Son of God was resurrected to become the prince and king. And you were a part of crucifying him. And the Holy Spirit is a witness to this as well. Now here's the simple translation of this. We will die for this. Because it didn't just happen. It all happened for very good reasons. And we will stake our lives on that. And God is with us. So you do whatever you want. Now what I find interesting there, right after he says that, he says, God raised Jesus from the dead. I think that what Peter is saying is, go ahead, kill me. I will immediately be resurrected. Pretty neat, huh? He is so confident. We are doing what he wants, and we are not alone. The Holy Spirit is with us. And if you want to mess with him, you go right ahead. I'm not. Now, again, some implications. These believers continue to practice the basics, and they're faithful to them. And they count on each other. They say, we, we must obey God and not you. And they are counting on the Lord's presence. Now, here's an important point to make in this. You can grow, and I wrote through, it really ought to be in this. But this is a little different than the first lesson. Because opposition's going to come and there's nothing you can do about it. This one has a subtle difference. You can grow this through this, but you may not. The difference is, is not just learning from what you can't avoid, which is opposition, but this is learning to depend in times where you can't do anything. It's subtle, but it's significant. This is the difference between being a victim of circumstances. Oh, dear me. And so, okay, I'll hang in there, and, and God will bring me through, and I'll learn something. And being a vital part of God's plan that he is working out. You see, this part of growth makes the circumstances and the opposition not about you and how much you're suffering, but about how much God is doing that you just happen to be a part of. And in it, you depend upon the God who has everything under control. And in that, you grow. Growth in this is more conditional. And I've been trying to think through what might help us understand that this week. And and this is a thought. I don't know if this will work or not. But I think it's the difference between a callus and a muscle. Is that possible? You know, if you just hang in there, 
I hate pull-ups, so I really didn't want to use this example because I never learned to do pull-ups. But, but they throw you up on the bar and you just hang in and sooner or later, you know, you hang long enough, you're going to develop a callus. But if you respond to it and actually work in it, now I don't want, to, I don't want it to be about what you're supposed to do. You're depending upon the Father but if you, and the Holy Spirit. But, but as we would walk with him, as we would continue to move through the circumstances, would he not develop a muscle in the process? And it's kind of ironic because it's about depending on him more. But when we do depend upon him more, we actually strengthen. Because as we yield to him, he fills us. And he uses us. And so there's a difference between a callus where you're just kind of hanging in and a muscle where you actually respond to it and seek to be all that God wants you to be in that set of circumstances. Not just hanging in until you can get it over with. You see, in the first case, you're just kind of making it through and you're going, phew. And in the second, you're making it about him and you grow in your dependence upon him. And you, you let him use you. Maybe it means courageously responding like these men did or whatever the circumstances might be. You depend upon him and he leads you, he fills you, he guides you, he uses you and you are strengthened through it because you see there's nothing like being right in the middle of God's perfect will because he does amazing things as we saw in the beginning of the passage there and, and then he, he even begins to do some amazing things in defending them he uses one of their actual interrogators to defend them and I just want to remind you of the circumstances. You remember the Sadducees were in power, but they were the smallest group, and they had the chief priest, and they had the temple of the guard, who wasn't just, you know, uh, like a mall cop. This guy was, like, second in power. And they're the ones that are kind of bringing him in and locking him up and, and bringing him back. But remember, the Pharisees were a part of the Sanhedrin, so the Sadducees and the Pharisees were together on the Sanhedrin, and they represented the larger majority of the populace. They were the more spiritually minded, though they were hung up on the law. And the Sadducees were more about aristocracy and, and, and being in political power. And so, this Gamaliel, with this influence he has, already popular with the crowds, and now a popular uh, teacher as well. Interestingly, he had a young disciple, and his name was Saul. And Saul became an incredibly zealous and a motivated persecutor of the church. He must have been quite a disciple maker, though not in the right direction, this Gamaliel. And he ends up using God, he ends up using Gamaliel to defend these men so that they would not lose their lives. But then there's also verse 41, being right in the middle of God. We see something in the will of God, we see something else. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And the name is remarkable here. They, they healed the lame man in the name of Jesus Christ. Remember, I don't have any uh, gold or riches, but I will give you what I have, I will give you. Rise and walk in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And then they explain. I mean, if we're being brought in because we, we've healed this man in this name of Jesus Christ, well then, you know, go ahead. And then, of course, in verse 12 of chapter 4, they say, only by this name can anyone be saved. There is no other name like this name 
faith, power, salvation, God himself. And in that name, we will gladly suffer. Once again, implications. They see their circumstances as used of God for what he wants, not what the others want. They don't see this circumstance as primarily a set of circumstances to shame them. They see this as a part of God's plan to accomplish whatever he wants. Even if he wants them to die, they believe in the resurrection and they're ready. There's no better place than being smack dab in the middle of God's perfect will. Here's the lesson, the simple translation. God's best place is not necessarily the safest place, is it? We don't like this. But we fight against it at our own expense. Honestly, we live in one of the safest places on earth, do we not? Then why are we so anxious? And why do we medicate ourselves so much with all of that anxiety? I mean, a year ago, we suffered the devastation of Superstorm Sandy. As bad as it was, and as much as we were able to do and continue to to help people in this country, it's nothing compared to what happened in the Philippines, is it? Because these people live in, in, in dangerous conditions all the time and then add a horrible, maybe one of the most powerful storms ever in recorded history, and they're devastated. Why are we, when we're so safe, so anxious? Because we've defined comfortable, convenient, safe, and protected as the definition of God's will for us. And we're wrong. God's best place is not necessarily the safest place. Yet, being right where God wants us is exactly where we want to be, safe or not. There's nothing like being right in the middle of God's perfect will. And we need to grow in this. Now let me show you how, as practically as I can. I want to give you five things through which you will grow spiritually. As I've talked about the implications, these are the five things. This is the plan to grow spiritually. And if you are a part of the community studies that we're doing, you've seen this embedded actually in there um, as a part of uh, sharing your story. But These five things I have found very, very helpful in us understanding how we can grow spiritually. Isn't that the $64,000 question? How are we going to grow spiritually? First of all, practical teaching. The tangible miracles that God used to prove uh, who he is and what he was doing and how he was doing was very, very practical. Jesus' instructions was practical. Jesus' example was undeniable. Then when the whole, when, even when the uh, 
the angels came to the apostles in jail and said, now go back out. And I'm just, not just freeing you. I want you to go out into the, to the square and I want you to continue to teach. Their teaching was very, very practical. People got it. They did as they were told. They taught. The people understood. Even the bad guys, let me show you this. Even the bad guys got it. Verse 28, we told you not to teach in that name anymore. You see how practical they were? Making it all about Christ and what he accomplished? And then, you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Isn't that interesting? They get what these guys, I mean, you know, remember, I've, t- I've showed you over and over, and Paul continues, I mean, uh, Peter continues to say, and you crucified him, and you nailed him to a cross, and you're the ones that killed him. They get it. It's very, very practical. It caused me to go back and to look and see how directly connected these were. You remember these Sadducees that were running, the chief priests? These were the ones that were in control of the Sanhedrin? In John chapter 19, they're there before Pilate, and they're all shouting, crucify him. And the chief priest speaks alone and says, we have no king but Caesar. You don't think you're guilty of nailing this guy to the cross? You're the one that spoke out and claimed your allegiance to another king and wanted this one crucified. In Luke chapter 23, Pilate comes, he says, I find no fault deserving of death for this man, nor does Herod. He's even been to Herod and back. No, we don't think he should. In one voice, they cry, crucify him. They got it. This teaching was very, very practical. You men are guilty of nailing this man to a cross. Nothing was missed. No philosophical glossing over. No lack of application. Very practical teaching. Private disciplines. These people continued. They're the same people from Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Remember how they gathered together and they, uh, the apostles teaching, the breaking of bread and fellowship and prayer. These are the definitions of, of what it is to walk personally, individually in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 3, they continued to meet in the colony. They went back out here and taught in the colony. We know that these people continued to practice these basic disciplines of their walk in Jesus Christ. And that's why we try and encourage the same thing here. Personal ministry. They are teaching. They are caring. They are healing. They are sharing with each other. They never stop teaching and proclaiming. Verse 42 says, their personal ministry is very, very obvious. That's another part of our growth. So we need to be learning very practically so we know what to do. We need to be teaching if we have a responsibility and make it undeniably clear. We're to be practicing personally our private disciplines. If we're not doing that in our own closets, in our own personal lives, in our own walks with Christ, we're not going to grow. But if we do, we will. We need to be engaged in personal ministry. We need to be doing things, not just taking it in, but exercising it, living it out. And then... Through providential relationships we grow. The apostles were arrested. They were in this together. Peter answers, together with the others, it says, and with the Holy Spirit. They see each other as needing each other. And their relationships with each other are providential in the moments that they need them to to, to be there for each other. And then there are pivotal circumstances that cause us to grow. The arrest, the release, the rejoicing because they've been counted worthy of suffering. 
They weren't rejoicing that they had been released, but that the situation meant that they could suffer for him. That was so pivotal. We got to be a part of what he wanted us to do. Now, you'll notice that I've separated these into two different parts on the screen because I think three of them you can do something about. These are for you to take initiative in. Practical teaching, private disciplines, personal ministry. Those are things that are under your responsibility, that are under your control. How much you grow spiritually will be determined by what you do in these three areas. The second two are outside of your control. You can't uh, manipulate the circumstances to make them pivotal. These just happen because God, in all of his sovereignty, continues to lead and provide and guide uh, guide us into the situations we're in. The providential relationships can't just be manufactured. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that. I I made a friend in Brooklyn that ended up just being like a a soulmate, and and he still is, and I can call him at any time, and it's like we've never been apart. I went to seminary in Chicago and just thought I could do that because this guy I just happened to meet, and and we became friends, so I was sitting next to a guy in orientation, and I just decided, okay, you're going to be my friend. Hi, you want to be my friend? And we tried to be friends. It's not like we never uh, had a friendship, but he was from Fargo, North Dakota. There's nothing wrong with Fargo, North Dakota. That's just farther away from me than I've ever been. I don't know. I just, there was something about him and me that just didn't line up. And we were friends, but it didn't become a, a real providential relationship. You can't just manufacture these. We know that. That's why we have people we're friends with that are closer than others. It's not a fault to the other person. It's just the way things work with affinity and chemistry. Well, how do we then do that? We have to create atmospheres in which those relationships can flourish. We must create environments in which people can discover those relationships with each other. And that's why we believe it's so important that we create environments in which people really develop relationships with each other. That's why our small group ministry is so important. I'm not trying to beat you over the head and say, you've got to do this if you're going to you know, be of any worth. We're trying to create an environment in which you can find those soulmates that will be your closest friends because you're going to face pivotal circumstances. And in those pivotal circumstances, you need people around you who can help you. You need, circum- you need, you need an environment in which you can share that burden and find that support and know that friendship and that help. And so, I think these five things are a simple way to understand how God wants you to continue to grow. See, piece by piece, we're learning all that is changing because of the Holy Spirit. We understand that he's a person, we understand that he's God, and we also understand now that this is the plan to grow spiritually, and this is how it happens. Through what you can control, through practical teaching, private disciplines, and personal ministry, and what you can only create an environment that will foster providential relationships so that you can walk through those pivotal circumstances. How much you grow spiritually can be directly measured against these things. What do you want at the end? A callus or a muscle? Let's pray. Lord, we want to grow. And we need to learn more about what that is and how we do that. 
Thank you for how practical you make your teaching in Scripture. Help us to respond as readily to it as these apostles did. Oh, once again, we remember they were weak and frail and scattered and blatantly denying this Savior that they had walked with just just days and weeks before. And now they're so emboldened and empowered, so willing to die at a moment's notice, so willing to accept the circumstances they're in as, as your providential working in their lives. We want to be that way. Would you help us? Would you help us to respond in the ways we should, in, in the things we can control? And truly be people who look to understand what you're teaching us and act on it. To exercise those private disciplines. To to involve ourselves in the ministries that you want us to do. And then will you foster in us as a body of believers these environments that will bring about lifelong relationships. And all of the support and strength that we need as we walk through every circumstance we face. Grow us, we pray, to be strong people, not just people hanging in there. In Jesus' name, amen.